listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. And so in Acts 17, we'll look at that in a moment. And, and uh, today we begin a new slash old series from the book of Acts. When Harvest Kelowna launched three years ago this fall, we started our first sermon series from the book of Acts. It was called The Church Begins, and we started in Acts 1. And, and thinking that, hey, you know what, as the church launches, as our church launches, it would be a great idea and a wonderful thing to go back to the original, to when the early church, when, when, when the church post-resurrection, the people of God started to gather together and, and, and to take our lead and our example from the Word of God as a new church beginning here in our city. And so each fall, we've taken a portion, we've taken a number of chapters from the book of Acts as we've worked through this over the last number of years. And today we begin, I guess, our fourth mini-series starting in the book, um, in the book of Acts in chapter 17. And, and this mini-series that we'll be doing over the next while is the church bold in its witness. And, and, uh, and, and it's so important that we keep Keep going back even as the church to look at the early church, the original church, to make sure that we're not going off course, that we're not drifting, that we're not getting distracted because that happens so easily. But God's word just guides us back. It guides us back to, to where we ought to be and, and uh, puts us uh, back in, into where uh, the church is, is to align itself and, and how we are to live and move and go about doing the work that God's called us to do. Now, you may have heard the story. It's not a true story, I don't think, about the two monks who were in a monastery a few centuries ago, and their job was to copy by hand the Word of God. And, uh, and one day as they were working quietly, uh, doing the work that they were supposed to do, one of them kind of broke their silence and said, uh, how do we know that what we're copying is correct? How do we know that we're not making a mistake, that what we're copying from isn't quite right? And, and the other monk broke his silence and said, well, every once in a while, if you have questions, you should go downstairs into the basement area where the originals are kept and take what you are copying and check it with the originals. It's a good idea for you to, you know, to do that from time to time. And so it was a little while later that monk indeed went down into the basement and, and took a copy of what he had been writing out and was checking it with the originals. And all of a sudden there was a shriek and it was just uh, a horrified shrieking. And, and as this other monk came downstairs to wonder what was going on, he said, the R, the R, we left out the R. How could we leave out the R? The word is celebrate. Some of you will get that maybe later. They left out the R and it was, yeah, celibate. And so anyways, um, some of you. And, and, and so, so easily we can um, get off track by just even simple little mistakes. And, uh, and, and more importantly and in more reality, when it comes to the mission and to the mandate and, and the message of the church and us, we need to get it right, getting it wrong and, and getting it off target and off focus off of what God's word calls us to do has eternal ramifications for those around us, maybe even for our own, you know, 
in our own lives because we have to look at how have I been saved? How is that, have I come to know Christ? Um, what kind of understanding of the gospel do I have? Was it an emotional response, a fearful response, or was it a biblical response to the call of Jesus Christ upon my life? And so we have to look at the source. We have to keep going back to the word of God. And here in Acts chapter 17, the first 15 verses, we have two stories from two cities that are closely parallel to one another in the activity and what was going on by the Apostle Paul as he was on this missionary journey. And what we end up seeing about the Apostle Paul and what they get labeled at, and I love this label that they ended up wearing as, as being known as men who were turning the world upside down. Isn't that an amazing thing? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing for it to be said of you, of me, of this church, that, that this city... Th is turned upside down because of the gospel, because of the work of Jesus Christ, how he's been working and moving in our midst and in our lives and through our witness. And so, so here, just to give some context, in, in, in Acts 17, Paul is on his second missionary journey. You see a map here that started out in Antioch. You can see a little pin there on the right-hand side. That's Antioch. That's where it started out in Acts 15. And, and you kind of see the little segment of arrows there. And, and now off in the far left corner, you see the city of Philippi in Acts 16, that's, um, they were in Philippi and they were just getting ready to leave there and, and uh, on the move from Philippi and then they're on their way to Thessalonica and, and then into Berea. And so now we just kind of focus in here, a little zoomed in on the top left-hand corner of the map so you can see a little bit there. You can see Thessalonica and Berea in the far left corner and uh, just to give you a little context of where they're at. And so in Acts 17, I'm going to start reading. We're going to read all 15 verses here this morning. Now when they had passed through Annapolis and at Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the, of the rabble, oftentimes these were men just kind of found loitering in the marketplace, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd." Out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason, a ransom, so to speak, and the, rest, and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were, were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. 
But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitated and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and they received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. And they departed. So in verse 6, we kind of see the title for today's message. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Again, wouldn't that be an incredible confession to be said about you and I? What a confession this is about the power of the gospel. It's not about the, 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 the show or the circus that sometimes we can make of our lives and even sometimes of the church, but of the power of the gospel in the lives of people. These men and women were turning the world upside down because Jesus had gotten a hold of their lives. And this morning we're going to see from God's word what it means and how you and I and this church and any church that is ready to do this and to live this kind of a life, any believer in our neighborhood, in our region, in our workplaces, in our families, can be a part of turning the world upside down for the mission of God. And so first of all, I encourage you to write this down. Turning the world upside down starts with a commitment to the mission, no matter the cost. It's a commitment to the mission of God, no matter the cost. And we see in verses 1 and 2 and, and verse 10, we see this. We see this commitment of, of how Paul and Silas continued to go. If, if you look just back one chapter, I encourage you to read that this week or even this afternoon in your study time. You see in Acts 16 that Paul and Silas were in Philippi preaching the word there. Long story short, because they were committed to the mission of God, they were accused of disturbing the city there, uh, virtually turning the city upside down there as well. And they found themselves stripped naked in front of a crowd of angry people. How humiliating to be stripped naked, and then beaten severely with rods, thrown into a dungeon, and into the deepest middle part of the dungeon in shackles. And what are they doing at that time? They're singing, they're worshiping, and they're praising God. Something miraculous happens there. And you can see how they were miraculously released from prison. If you don't know the story, I encourage you to read that this afternoon. We're not going to take time to cover that today. We're now in Acts 17. And so in Acts 17, we see they were released from prison, but it wasn't safe for them and for the other believers to, to have Paul and Silas there. And so now they're leaving for Philippi. And they're traveling with bruised and beat-up bodies uh, about 100 miles, that stretch there from Philippi, as you can see there on the map over to the Thessalonica, is about 100 miles. And, and they stopped in the other two cities there, but they did not stay there very long. They probably stayed the night traveling 30, 40 miles a day, and they ended up getting to Thessalonica. These guys weren't packing it in. They weren't quitting. They weren't giving it up. They weren't heading for the hills. They weren't looking for some seaside villa just to sit and to write and, and to write their memoirs. No, they were committed to the mission of God no matter what, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult. They knew the mission that God had called them to be a part of and they desired to be faithful to it. One of the things that J.D. Greer, again, he challenged us with, he says, life in the world happens through death in the church. Life in the church, life in the world, spiritual life in the world happens through death in the church. 
God will multiply in fruitful and incredible ways just as a seed when it goes into the ground, it dies in order to become fruitful. And when we say no, when we surrender, when we say yes to God and no to our selfish ways, to our fleshly lives, and we say yes to God in surrender to him, he brings the fruitfulness. Church is not coming about coming to, to be entertained. This isn't why Paul was establishing churches to entertain people or to tickle their ears or to make them feel good or just to mark it on a checkbox. And so oftentimes today we look for churches that have all the amenities that are going to meet our needs. That is so wrong and that's so upside down. It's about being a part of the mission of God. And God always calls his children into the body of Christ. He'll never call you outside of the body of Christ. He'll never call you into just hanging out with some friends over at a bar or in a Bible study. He calls you into community. Why? Community's hard. Community's tough. Community is where we get to live out and we get to practice the gospel in our own lives. Forgiving, walking with one another, the many... um, encouragements and commands in scripture the many one another's are practiced within the body of christ it's about a commitment to the mission of god giving god our first and our best when oftentimes we again have that so upside down we give god what's what's left and what we can afford but no we give god what's first and best when it comes to our resources our time our ability we don't sit around and think well maybe somebody else will do it somebody else can do it oh you see the need there and point out the need no you get in there and you do it It's about the mission of God, and and God calls every one of his children to participate in it. And God will multiply what is sown in death. He will multiply what is sown in death. You see that in the lives of the martyrs over the years. What was thought to be evil and what was a terrible thing that ended up taking place has brought the salvation of many lives. We are reminded from the word of God of Matthew 25. I encourage you to read In Matthew 25, jot that down and and you read about the parable that Jesus told about the workers who were given a certain amount of talents, a certain amount of money. And one of the things that we were reminded of is is that there are more than, than one way to be wicked. When we think of wicked, we think of what might happen on this screen throughout the course of the week. There's a lot of violence, a lot of wickedness, a lot of sinfulness. We might think of the world that we live in. There's so much wickedness and and just evil that happens. You just go to Castanet News or Kelowna News Now or to a newspaper or or to any sort of one of the news feeds that you might be following and and you just see this world is wicked, wicked, wicked. and, and, And we think, yes, this world is such a wicked place. And then sometimes if we get honest and we get honest before others and say, you know what, my heart is off oftentimes very wicked, I'm selfish, I'm prideful, I'm arrogant, I'm lazy in, in this area or whatever it might be. But in this room that we can easily, though we're worshiping the Lord and serving the Lord, we can even be labeled as wicked because Jesus does this here to the life, um, to one of his servants as he gave out the talents to his, his servants to a certain amount of money. The others went and, 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 and put it to work and brought back more for the master. And then the one that was given, yes, the least amount of money in this situation came back. And instead of doing anything with it, he buried it. He just sat on it. He gave it back. He, he didn't, you know, gamble it. He didn't do anything bad with it. But what did Jesus call that servant? Wicked and lazy. When we do not live out the mission of God and we do what, and, and use what God has entrusted in giving our first and our best to him, 
We're about our own mission and we're not about the mission of God. We'll never turn the world upside down. We, it, it won't, we won't make an eternal difference in the lives of others. And this is a call and a command that we are given and an opportunity to, to turn this world upside down. But it won't happen by lazy and wicked people. It's those who are willing to leverage and use what God has given. Even if it's a little, it's using what God has given for his glory. Whose mission are you committed to? Your own mission, your own personal name, your own personal finances and, and all of those. Yes, it's okay to save and, and, and to work hard and, 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 and to do well, but it's all for the glory of God. It's for his glory and it's for what we can do in helping to, to further the mission of God. Look at it in verse 1. As it says, as they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. You see, Paul is following a pattern. He has a plan. Do you have a plan? Do you have a pattern of service of what God is calling you to do in the mission of God? Here's what Paul is doing. He would go into a, into a new city and oftentimes they went through those smaller cities with the name A that are a little difficult to pronounce and, and he passes through those. Those are smaller cities and he goes to oftentimes the larger cities. Thessalonica was a, a, a large city. It was a place of commerce and trade, about 200,000 people and he would go to the places where oftentimes there was a synagogue, a synagogue of the Jews and Paul, as it, it was his custom, you see time and time again, if the city was large and they had a Jewish synagogue, he would go there to the synagogue and he would, would preach the gospel. He would reason with them and we see on three Sabbath days, he was there reasoning with them from the scriptures. He had a plan. And here in Acts 17, we see that, that as he does this, um, and, and the crowd that is gathered there, there are Jews, and, 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 and there are Jews that, that are, are following still the Old Testament traditions and, and the laws of the Sabbath and circumcision. circumcision. There's also Greeks or, or Gentiles that are there. They're called God-fearing. They're seeking God. They're, they're, con they're very intrigued by the God of Israel. They don't like all the many uh, gods that, that are in the Roman world world and, and so they're intrigued by this God and they're seeking this God to know more but they're not willing to, to commit to Sabbath regulations or circumcision but they're there and they're listening and, um, and, and within that crowd we end up seeing that there are those that are listening and Jews that respond, there are the Greeks that respond but there are the haters. The people who are stirring up opposition who don't like what they're hearing. And we see here in Acts 17, as goes, I think this is the sixth time this has already happened to Paul uh, uh, through his missionary journeys here, is that another angry mob gets thrown together. Paul and Silas end up leaving the city. And then that angry mob ends up coming to Thessalonica. It's like they can't escape it. And so oftentimes, folks, when opposition comes, when we are desiring to live for God, to honor him in the way that we live, in the way that we work, in the way we conduct our business, opposition will come. It's a sure thing, just as it was for the Apostle Paul. We oftentimes can get discouraged with a lack of results in our life. We've been praying for someone to come to know Christ for years or praying for an opportunity, an open door to share the gospel. We can become discouraged and confused at times with a lack of results, poor finances, low numbers, or we question and wonder, am I doing the right thing in the ministry that I'm a part of? Is there fruitfulness? Is God actually doing anything? And so oftentimes when we move for God and we're part of the mission for God, we want to quit. We want to pack it in. We want to give up, but we don't. We keep on going. Remember, we are in a spiritual battle. 
The battle is real. We are swimming when you are desiring to live for God and to be a part of his mission, the mission that he's called us to be of. We're swimming against the stream of society. We're in a spiritual battle. And here we see a commitment that the Apostle Apostle Paul has to the mission of God. Where Where does the mission begin for you and for me? Why should we be committed to this mission? It's only, I'll tell you this, the mission of God is only for those who have given their hearts to Jesus Christ. And once we've given our hearts to Jesus Christ, we've chosen to follow Christ, we join the mission of God. Listen and follow along here. These words are on the screen, but write down Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I encourage you in your Bibles to underline that next, next, uh, the next two words there. But God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were once dead in our sin. And because of God's grace and because of his mercy, because of Jesus, we've been made alive And then in verse 10, as you go down a few verses, it goes on to say, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, the gospel is the motivation for our mission. It's not to try to get in with God, to try to earn our salvation. The gospel is the motivation as to why we do it. It's why we're here, even here this morning, because we believe in the mission of God and because the gospel has impacted the lives of men and women here in this church. And what happened in us is all because of Christ. It's what he has done in us, and because of that, we are compelled to tell others. We are commanded to tell others. Good works The good works that are there in verse 10, if you just go back to the last screen there when it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Those good works aren't about making you rich and successful and famous. About being able to to have more properties and, 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 and more thrills and spills in life. I mean, again, nothing wrong with being able to enjoy this life, but it's about first and foremost being a part of the mission of God, not about our own personal mission and, and, and plans. First and foremost, the mission that God calls us to be a part of. And these are the good works to, to see what Paul and Timothy were a part of, to be about kingdom work. And so we are, we are all to be on this mission for God. And you say, so am I supposed to be like Paul and Timothy and Silas and, and kind of leave everything and, and, and go and start preaching and, and, and get ready for, you know, fights and different things that might go along? No, you might be like in the house of Jason as we read about here. Housing and caring and, and accommodating the servants of God. 
Some of the behind-the-scenes kind of work that's going on. And yet you see how they were lumped into this crew as well. That because of them aiding and abetting, so-called is what they were being accused of, they were also seen as being part of this movement about being a part of the mission of God. And even though they weren't prominent people, and all throughout Paul's writings you see people who, and, and, and as you read in, in other portions of Scripture in the book of Acts and in Thessalonians, as Paul then writes to the church in Thessalonica, we see that there are those that left Thessalonica to join Paul, but what ended up happening there in that city was a strong and a vibrant church was planted and established. Paul and Silas were there just for a short time, but God's servants continued on with the work. Are you committed to the mission of God or are you committed to your own mission? The mission of comfort. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to be part of his mission? There's no higher, there's no greater, there's more, no more fulfilling calling than being a part of this mission. And we do it right where we are. It's looking around and seeing need and opportunity and joining in the mission. Second of all, though, it's understanding the power source. And the power source is the Holy Spirit. And we see here in verse 4, it says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And then in verse 12, it says, Many of them, this is now in Berea, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And here we see again the power of the gospel to save people. Jews, Gentiles, those from high standing, those from ordinary standing in life. In Acts 16, we see the, the Philippian jailer who comes to Christ. He and his family, and, 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 and we're seeing lives being changed and transformed. Lives were, 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 that were spiritually dead come alive. A heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh. The spiritually blind all of a sudden receive spiritual eyes and sight and able to see. The religious were being set free from their bondage that had been binding them up for years or even decades and loving Christ-centered community was being established in the cities as they went out. As Paul and Silas went into these cities and then the work continued on, they were turning the world upside down. And it was the power of the gospel as the word was being preached and the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul didn't have the power to save souls. You and I don't have the power to save souls. We don't build the church. Jesus does that. We work and serve as servants in the power of the Holy Spirit, as servants of God. And he does that work. I cannot bring the dead to life. I can't change a heart. Only God can do that. Paul only spent, as we see here, a short time in Thessalonica. Three Sabbaths, it says, he was there reasoning with them. And then they had to move on. Now, some would say that he was there for a longer period of time than just those three Sabbaths, that he was perhaps there. He spoke three times in, in, in the synagogue and, and stayed there, but more than likely, it was just a matter of months that he was there at the most. And some even believe he was just there for those three weeks. In that time, in three weeks, a vibrant, healthy, loving church was established. And how does that happen? Paul wasn't there. He wasn't there very long. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. To have a heart transformed is the power of the Holy Spirit. To grow and to build a healthy, strong community isn't just through potlucks and, 
having nice little dinners together, and, and those are important and good and necessary. But it was the power of the Holy Spirit that was building the work. And Paul was so quick to admit that. He was so quick, right down 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 6. There he, he says that the gospel came not merely by words, but he says, but it, by the Holy Spirit power. Yes, I was, I was speaking, I was flapping my gums, I was giving it out, but it was the Holy Spirit power that enabled you to hear the word and respond and to be transformed. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. Again, he says, I didn't come with eloquent speech, but I came in a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And you see that over and over again in the book of Acts. The gospel expands not through human strength, but through weakness, through opposition, through persecution, through demonic forces, worldly powers, but ultimately in and through all of those things by the Spirit of God. We see the opposition, we see that it's real and yet there's a commitment to the mission and we see that all, everything must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where that theme verse from Zechariah was so impactful for us at the conference. Not by might, nor by power, but by thy spirit, says the Lord. And then thirdly, it's about proclaiming the right message. And what is the right message? Write down the word of God. Look at in verse 2, the last part, he says, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaimed to you is the Christ. Notice, first of all, it says there in verse 2 that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. I encourage you to underline that word. He reasoned with them. For three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them. What was the source that he was preaching? The latest author? The latest traveling conference speaker in the Jewish synagogues? No, he wasn't quoting them. He was quoting the very words of God. He was preaching and teaching the word of God to the people. And we have to understand the context here, folks. The Jews were dominated by the political kind of reality of what they saw around them. The Roman Empire, it was about strength. It was about power. And their prayer and their hope and the way that they even read the word of God is they were looking for this Messiah to come, this conquering king. And they thought that it was Jesus. They, they, they even thought, hey, this could be the one. This is the Messiah. This is the one. This is going to be the conquering king. He's going to dethrone the Roman Empire and God's kingdom will be established. And, and, and they love those verses. So the idea of a suffering savior seemed a little silly to them. That's why Jesus didn't make sense. That's why they were continuing on. They liked and held to and clung to the scriptures that talked about Messiah as a conquering king. And they ignored and overlooked the passages of the suffering servant. And you see, folks, this is a great danger that we can get into, into our lives here today. And I believe it's so strong in the church of Jesus Christ in North America. And it's a lack of knowledge when it comes to the word of God, a lack of understanding. In fact, we oftentimes treat God's word like this bag of bits and bites. Now, one thing you need to know about my wife, and she gave me permission to use this illustration, um, or to talk about her in this way, is, you know, you kind of have these Cheerios, and, uh, oh, I got all Cheerios there. Ooh, bonus, I like Cheerios. 
So, but you have Cheerios and you've got, you know, shreddies and, and you've got these little cheesy things and some, ooh, some peanuts in there. And, you know, and, and one of the things that, that she uh, doesn't like very much and doesn't really tolerate too much, at least when she's around in our household, is when th this kind of thing is in a bag or in a bowl, she doesn't like it when people are digging through and finding their favorite and leaving the rest. How many of you ladies enjoy that when that happens? Yeah, not a hand goes up, of course, because it like drives you The thing that drives you the most is when people dig down to the bottom with their filthy, dirty hands that have just been touching some pet or something outside in the yard, and, and you're just like, ooh, gross, you know? And, and they're digging around, and they're pulling out all the pretzels or whatever. She makes this incredible mix at Christmas time, this Mexicali mix, and boy, oh boy, uh, you know, she doesn't really appreciate it when we, when we just kind of pick and choose what we want. And so, sadly... Here, if you guys want to enjoy some, just kind of pass along, enjoy. That benefit bonus of sitting in the front row, just front row people can enjoy it. Uh, they might be a little stale. Found them in the back of the cupboard today. So anyways, just uh, eat at your own risk. Um, but you know what? Sometimes God's word becomes stale to us too and we just put it in the back of the cupboard, right? And then we pick out the bits and parts that we like. We treat God's word like we're eating from a bag of bits and bites we read the portions we like, the stuff we kind of pick and choose, and we leave out the stuff we don't like. We like the Psalms because, oh, I can just relate so much to the psalmist. And, and they oftentimes just end so good, and, and just they're so heartwarming or heartful, uh, heartwarming or helpful to me. Or, or I really like uh, Philippians. Oh, Philippians, the, the epistle of joy. And oh, when I need some joy, I just read from the book of, but I don't like that book of Revelation. That scares me. Or I don't like the prophets. I mean, there's, there's some angry prophets there. And boy, some of it's a little confusing, a little hard to read. Folks, write this down. It takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. We need the entire word of God in our lives. Or else we can fall into the same trap of the Jews and miss the important message of the word of God. And what God wants to do in our lives. And, and what he wants to sanctify in and through us takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. See, they didn't realize it or see it, but what they, they were looking for the Messiah that would come as the conquering king. They didn't realize or chose not to, to realize or to focus on that there would be two comings of this Messiah. The first one would be the suffering Savior, and the one that we're waiting for and that Scripture continues to point to now is the conquering king that will one day come. That's why he writes to them, First and second Thessalonians read that this week as you see how he encourages them because he was there just a short time that he didn't get an opportunity to tell them about the king that will be coming. That Jesus will come one day as the conquering king and he wants them to know that. And so on these Sabbath days, he would have taken them through the Old Testament scriptures. I printed them off this morning, not the Old Testament scriptures, but the over 300 prophecies that we have in the Old Testament regarding the life, the birth, the location of the birth, about the life and ministry of Christ, about his death, about his burial, about his resurrection, over 300 prophecies about Jesus. And no doubt what he was doing on those Sabbath days, and he just wasn't given 45 minutes or 50 minutes to preach this. He would have taken more than likely the whole day, 
The whole Sabbath day, he would have been there reasoning from the scriptures to the audience that were listening. And, and what he would do is set the Old Testament scriptures on one side, and then he would set Jesus on the other side. And so on this side, he would explain to them, you know, he probably started in Genesis 3.15, that, 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 that the Messiah would be born of the seed of a woman. goes on that, that he will... A bruise Satan's head, that Christ's um, heel would be bruised with nails on the cross. And, and then he'd go over here and, and just talk about Jesus. And then he'd go over here and, and, and slowly work through these Old Testament texts. Like then in, I made this printing so small, I can barely see because I wanted it to fit on like eight or nine pages. In Joshua 5 where it, 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 it tells Messiah would be the captain of our salvation. And then he would take them and, and, and he would just espouse and, and share with them the truths of how Jesus is the captain of our salvation. And, and just work through these 300 different prophecies, like in, in Job 19, where the resurrection is predicted, or in Psalm 22, the suffering and agony on the cross. Psalm 22, again, that is pierced, they would pierce his hands and his feet. In Psalm 22, again, that he would be stripped before the, the stairs of men, and it just continues to go on in Psalm 78 that he would teach in parables. He did that. Isaiah 6, that, that uh, the parables would fall on deaf ears. Yep, that happened. Isaiah 11, that he would know their thoughts, and he certainly did know that. And so we just see this all through these different... Um, Isaiah 53, that he would be silent before his accusers. Isaiah 53, again, buried in a rich man's grave, and, and he just goes through all of these. And so as he reasoned with them from the scriptures, he used the word of God to declare the truth to the people. And folks, this is where the power is. The power is in the Word of God by the Spirit of God in our lives. You see, the written Word reveals the living Word. Get that? Understand that? The living Word, or the written Word reveals the living Word. All throughout the Old Testament, we see Jesus revealed. It's all throughout. And so oftentimes people think that when it comes to Christianity, you kind of have to check your brains at the door. You know, it's just, you know, this simple faith, and I guess, okay, seems a little hokey, just seems a little... No, folks, listen. Archaeology, history, scientific support, all towards biblical Christianity, it's staggering. Folks, Christianity is a reasonable faith. It makes sense. And it's important that we study and we know the word of God so we can proclaim it boldly to those around us, that we proclaim it boldly in love. And that's why we need to dig into the word of God. That's why I encourage you to bring your Bibles, encourage you to be studying the word of God as, as, as I give you notes and, and references to write down. That's why you come to your studies, your Bible studies that you're a part of prepared and, and, and already have gone through. So you study it and, and, and you research and, and, and you, you get that done and, and, and you do other um, areas of study to grow in your faith and, and to grow in your knowledge of the scriptures. You see, folks, the written word is it. It ends up showing us Jesus, and that's what happened. As, as Paul was preaching, was proclaiming these truths, revealing Jesus to, to the folks, they responded. They responded to the gospel. But, but it's more than just speaking from the scriptures. It says then, look, at he explained and proved, at the end of verse 3 we see, he explained and proved the scriptures, but then he proclaimed Jesus in verse 3. He preached then the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel to the people. You see, folks, we have to understand that the gospel, 
The gospel that saves is more than God loves you and has a nice plan for your life. That's an incomplete gospel. There's truth there, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is more than just getting people to say some little prayer at the end of a week of summer camp. And then they're in. The gospel is not emotionalism. Just kind of wearing people down or scaring them, um, scaring them with, with hellfire and brimstone or getting them to shed a tear. And, 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 and so then again, they pray this prayer. Folks, the gospel is a reasonable faith based on the word of God, based on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And a person is only saved by believing and understanding in their minds the gospel first and foremost. Now, praise the Lord, the emotionalism oftentimes follows. We're undone by his grace and his mercy as we grow in our relationship with him. When we understand how sinful and wicked and how proud and arrogant and, 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 and quick to wander at times, Lord, I feel it, quick to leave the God I love, and yet he loves and restores, and we're undone again by his glory's grace and mercy that he demonstrates to us. And so Paul explained and proved that it was necessary, first of all, for Christ to suffer. That Christ had to suffer on the cross because Christ's perfect obedience, the fact that he lived this perfect life, that he was without sin, made him the perfect obedience to the law. He fulfilled the requirements of the law, that he was that perfect lamb of God. He fulfilled them all. And then his substitu substitutionary death paid the penalty for our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God. He took our sin. That's so important that we know that and understand that and pr proclaim that when it comes to sharing the gospel. And the second thing, that, so he preached Christ suffered, Christ crucified, but then he also boldly preached and proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is God's approval. It is our hope and it is our victory. And all through the sermons in the book of Acts, when you look at them, we see this emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I like what John Stott said. He said, Christianity is in the very essence a resurrection religion. The concept of the resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? Uh, what is of first importance? That Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again according to the scriptures. That's first and foremost. That is the truth. That is the gospel. And we must understand that. And, and, and this is the, the amazing thing about the gospel is that it is so simple that a child can understand, but it is so deep and amazing and wonderful that this br most brilliant of minds will continue to dig further and, and just glory in the truth and the reality of the gospel until the day that they are taken home or until Jesus Christ returns. That's the gospel. And that is what we proclaim. It is the word of God that saves the lost, that sanctifies the same, saved people. And it is our primary source of power. It is our one source of truth that we take and we follow and we live. It's not easy, but it is our highest calling. It is our highest calling and our source of truth. We can't bring words of life to people. We can't save people. It is all and only by the grace of our God. I wonder this morning, I had a fourth point, but we're not going to go into it this morning. I wonder when it comes to this statement of turning the world upside down, he's called you to be a part of that. We've been invited into the mission. Are you committed to this mission? 
of going into your neighborhood, into your family, into your workplace, into our city? Are you committed to the mission of God, whatever the cost? Or do we give God kind of the, the leftovers? There's going to be a great opportunity this afternoon at 12 at our church office location to talk about some ways that we as a church want to get about in a more serious and intentional way the mission of God here in our city and even look at some, just some updates on some global, um, just where things stand, stand in some global go time opportunities. Encourage you to come. Encourage you to be a part of that. Might put a little monkey wrench into how much pizza and what time the pizza all arrives that we may have to order more. That's okay. I'd rather have to order more pizza and have more folks there just to hear and talk and pray about what God's calling us to do. We were asked the question, if our church was suddenly to disappear from the city of Kelowna this week, would our world, would our city even notice? Would all of a sudden after a few weeks, a few people might be going to work or heading to another church on a Sunday morning and say, oh, those orange signs aren't out anymore. Are we making a difference? If you were to suddenly be taken out, you were to move away suddenly, pass away, go home, hopefully to heaven if you know Christ. Would the world notice? Would they take notice and say, wow, how am I going to live without that? I, I trust your family will. But would the world, would those around us miss us for the sake of the gospel and for the influence that we have on them? I believe that God is calling us to, to be more intentional in certain parts of the city and, and it involves us being willing. Are you committed to the mission? Are you committed to the mission of church planting about being a part of helping to continue to plant and establish Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna and Lord willing? We are a church planting church. We want to see other churches like this planted throughout this region, throughout this province, around this nation and around the world. This is the mission that we are called to. It is the highest mission the most important mission, the mission of God. And for many of you, that starts in your marriages, it starts in your family, that we're concerned about leading and loving our families, our children, our spouses in the mission of God. It's understanding the power source. You say, I'm tired, I'm worn out. Yeah, welcome to, what year are we in, 2017. It just seems like we're a caffeined up society, aren't we? That we just need it to get on. No, we need the Holy Spirit's power. We have the Holy Spirit's power. We've got power. We have victory that is not of our own. And we tie into the Holy Spirit through abiding in the word and dependency before the Lord and being filled daily with his presence and his power in our lives. And then it's about proclaiming the right message. Are you, are you committed to the word of God? Are you committed to learning and studying it on your own? Are you committed to learning and studying it with others? It's vital. It's important. Face-to-face -face accountability, walking together, learning together, messing up together at times when, when we go through life. But it's, it's repenting and, 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 and um, confessing and walking in authentic community with one another. Other. Are you committed to these things? Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we would see that the lives of people around us depend on our faithfulness to the message. Lord, I pray that we would be committed to the mission of God. But so oftentimes I confess I'm committed to my own thing. I'm committed to areas that I think will make me 
look good or sound good or... And God, I confess to you, I want to be about your mission and your mission only. God, I pray that each one of us here, we would use and leverage right where you've placed us with what you've entrusted to us and we would use it for your honor and your glory that we wouldn't be wicked, lazy servants. And God, for those that are discouraged, that are, have grown weary in well-doing, they're in the battle, they're, they're dependent upon you and, and yet there's facing opposition, whether it's from others or maybe just sat, Satan attacking with discouragement and with terrible thoughts and you're a loser, you're no good, look at you can't do anything and Satan in it. In, in the name of Jesus, we just, we just pray for folks that are in that battle and knowing that, God, you have given us the victory to overcome these kind of attacks and this kind of thinking. And it comes through your word of God as we trust your word, as we live out your word, as we pay attention to it, we find strength and power. God, we know that there's a price to pay in all of this and would we be willing to pay it? God, I pray for each brother and sister here today. I pray that if there are those that don't know you, that, that have not, never trusted you as Lord and Savior, as the Messiah, as the one that the Old Testament, over 300 prophecies spoke about, who came to this earth to die on a cross for our sins, and that death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God, that we can now walk in a relationship and live in a relationship with this God of this universe because of Jesus. This is why he is our savior and he's also our Lord. We are willing and ready to do what we are called to do through your word and by your spirit in our lives. May we walk in your power and your strength in our lives, Lord. It's interesting just this morning as I was just getting ready to leave the house, I got a text message from a friend of mine in Ontario. So random. No, it wasn't. It's was so Holy Spirit. And this was the question. He says, why do we serve? Because it's worth it. There is a resurrection waiting. Keep on keeping on because it's worth it. Oh, Lord Jesus, would we see that this mission is more than worth it because the gospel reality in our lives is priceless. It means everything. It is the difference between life and death, heaven and hell, power and victory in our lives or discouragement and defeat. Oh God, may we be committed to this mission and may together for your sake and for your glory and by your power turn this city, this world upside down. In Jesus' name we pray.